from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Wendy Kyung Spray is on the show today, and she's the author of The Chinese Kitchen Garden. And boy, do I love this book. It's half how to grow, half how to cook, and half an amazing glimpse into the wonderful Kyung Spray family. So that's 150% worth of yummy, beautiful love all in one book. Plus, it's a great way to kick off Chinese New Year, which is this week, and this year celebrates the Year of the Dog. Before the holidays, Timber Press sent me a copy of the Chinese Kitchen Garden. I didn't know it was coming, so I got this package, I opened it up, and all I can say is that it made me smile right away, and it is superb. As gardeners, sometimes we can get a little restless searching for a new variety, something new to try, just something, a little razzmatazz for our garden. And when nothing strikes our fancy, we can feel unsatisfied. Sometimes finding something new for the garden is a little like shoe shopping to me. When you want to find something amazing, you can't find it. But when you're not looking, something amazing will just pop up. Bottom line, strike while the iron's hot. And the iron's definitely hot when it comes to Wendy Kyung Spray's new book. In a nutshell, reading Wendy's book felt like having the best shopping day ever at DSW. Just when I was feeling a little uninspired about my garden this year, Wendy's introduction to Asian vegetables was a spark, and it opened the door to growing a whole new cast of edibles for me. That's exciting. So if you're looking for something new to grow, if you're a foodie, or if you want to start a kitchen garden this year or amp up your kitchen garden after last year's kitchen garden, this episode with Wendy is perfect for you. The Chinese Kitchen Garden with Wendy Kyung Spray. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. Well, I'd like to start out by saying thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast this week, and also Happy Chinese New Year. You can celebrate the Year of the Dog from February 16th through March 4th. Anyway, if you've just found the show, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. And I always like to say that I hope you're listening to many different gardening podcasts. This week, I treated myself and I had a very fun time listening to the Wildflower Half Hour. This week's podcast was all about the truth about snowdrops. And when I shared this on my social media, I said, snowdrops plus English accents plus spring equals joy. It was a really fun listen, and I learned so much about snowdrops, including that some of the most rare and wonderful snowdrops can actually get stolen right out of the garden, which I found very shocking. I had no idea, but they are beautiful. So if you're a galanthophile, someone who loves snowdrops, 
and you've got a half an hour to spare, check out that episode, the Wildflower Hour podcast, but it's actually only a half hour podcast and it's really good. In any case, listening to podcasts is one of the best ways to grow and learn as a gardener. So keep doing that. Add a bunch of podcasts to your playlist. When you're out and about, you can be working on your gardening skills. And of course, I'm always glad that you're spending some time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast. I'd like to make sure that you know about the listener community for the show. It's a free private Facebook group that I created for listeners of the show. And everybody has a variety of different gardening experience and backgrounds. So you're in good company. And it's really fun to see everyone's gardening experiences, their containers, their garden plots, and of course, their garden harvest. So come on over, join the group. All you need to do the next time you're in Facebook is just search for the Still Growing Podcast group, and our group will pop right up. Just request to join, and we'll admit you into the group. Now, one of the benefits of joining the group is that you'll have access to all of the garden articles that I feature during the show. And also, it's the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any of the show giveaways. Last week's episode featured the wonderful book by Leslie Buck called Cutting Back, My Apprenticeship in the Gardens of Kyoto, another one of my favorites this year. And the winner is Renee Ford. So congratulations, Renee. Private message me with your contact information. The publisher will send you a copy of Leslie's book. And Leslie will be personally following up with a set of her hand-sketched bookmarks, which I'm sure you'll enjoy as well. So congratulations, Renee. I want to make sure that I welcome new members to the Facebook group. Welcome to Mary Rabai, Debbie Sowers, Alan Williams, Eugene Lincoln, Adri Kalanick, Marco Antonio, Fakla Barsukov, Caroline Hope, Minka Holt, Shakar Gamir, and Julie Bromberg. Welcome, you guys. You know, another great reason to join the Facebook group is that it's a wonderful place for you to continue the conversation with the fabulous guests that have been on the show. The majority of guests that are on the show are also in the Facebook group, and that gives you a chance to follow up with any questions you might have about any of the content you hear on the show. And the guests of the show are such a great resource. So take advantage of that. Plus, Just a reminder, it's totally free and easy to join. So the next time you're in Facebook, just type in Still Growing Podcast Group and request to join. I'd love to meet you in the group. Well, don't forget that there's also a phone number for the show. If you have comments, questions, suggestions, or feedback, all you have to do is call 865-333-GROW or 865-333-GROW. Four seven six nine. I'd love to hear your voice. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week in the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group, and it's made up of a dozen different segments. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay somewhat informed of the news going on in horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week. And you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself 
myself because I share all of it with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something and want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. In the guest update segment, past guest Peggy Riccio shared a great post on gardening books that have come out as of February 2018. They include some of the books written by guests that have been on the show this quarter, including one of my favorites by Joanne Moser called Garden Builder, 35 Complete Plans for Outdoor Projects You Can Build. That was a fun interview. And this is a great list by Peg. If you're looking for garden inspiration, check out her post on new gardening books as of February 2018. And if you're trying to find this post in the group, just go to the search bar and type in PEG, P-E-G, and this post will pop right up. In sustainability, there was a remarkable post that was shared by Modern Farmer, and it's called Three Ways Farmers Are Kicking the Plastic Habit. And the reason I wanted to share it in the group is that there's a word that I think gardeners should know, and it's plasticulture. And the reason we need to know that word is because we really own it. Let me read the first paragraph of this article to you and you'll understand what I'm talking about. From the pipes and tubes that deliver irrigation water to the pots seedlings are grown in to those delightfully tacky blue and orange bits of twine that bind bales of hay, plastic products are stitched into almost every agricultural activity. Agricultural films, thin plastic membranes used to cover the soil for purposes of weed suppression, temperature enhancement, fertilizer uptake, and more, are one of the largest contributors to the billions of pounds of plastics that are discarded each year. The use of these films has become so predominant in recent years that there's now a name for it, plasticulture. Wow. Anyway, this is an article worth reading. And to the extent that we as gardeners contribute to plastic culture, we should be aware of this issue and see if there aren't some suitable substitutes that we can implement, especially when it comes to sustainability. In continuing, Ed, one of my favorite articles was by Garden Therapy. They shared an awe-inspiring article about the fascinating herbal histories from around the world. So what they did is they shared a variety of different herbs and then talked about the different ways this herb is perceived throughout history from all these different places on the globe. So for instance, time. Thyme was perceived in Sumeria as an antiseptic. That's what they used it for. But in the Mediterranean, in ancient Greece, thyme was thought to bring courage to those who smelled it. In fact, the name thyme actually comes from a Greek word, which translates into bravery. Thus, in Europe, the Greek association of thyme with courage continued into the medieval period and beyond. 
So knights wore sprigs of fresh thyme into battle so that they could be brave. They could have courage. Anyway, you can go through this article. If you love that kind of stuff, I do. You can just geek out on it, read about all different kinds of herbs and plants and see how their meaning evolved and also differed from one country to another. Very interesting. Love that stuff. In the how-to DIY segment, starkbrothers.com has a page on its website devoted to successful tree pruning, and it's really worth starring and favoriting so that you can go back to it. They give a lot of tips from the pros. They talk about why you want to prune for survival, for stimulation, for shaping, and then they give these wonderful tips. And I'm just going to give you three of these wonderful tips here from this infographic. Um, That I think is worth printing out, cutting it out, and then putting it on a bulletin board or in some type of handy reference spot for your garden. But here are their three tips when it comes to pruning. The first is 10 o'clock pruning angle. So I kind of think of it as driving. You have a a 10 o'clock and a two o'clock angle for pruning. That's the ideal pruning angle. Then second, pruning to a bud. You want to make sure that you have this clean cut that's close enough to the bud so that you don't have this weird stub that's hard to heal over. But at the same time, you want to stay far enough above the bud so that it won't die back. And then finally, always prune back to buds aimed in the direction you want limbs to grow. So if you think about a branch Some of the buds on that branch will be pointing in kind of a funky direction. They'll be pointing down or backward, that kind of thing. Those are not the buds that you want to prune back to. You want to prune back to buds that are going in the direction you want the tree to grow in. So make your cut above a bud that's aimed outward, and that will help your tree grow into a nice spreading shape. Anyway, there are a ton of tips on this page. This is just one example. There's many, many more. I love this particular part of the Stark Brothers website. So star it, and I'm sure it will become a favorite of yours as well. In the plant spotlight, Modern Farmer also shared a peachy little post on how to plant asparagus. Because of course, now is the time to start thinking of it. The best time to plant asparagus is early spring before its roots awaken from dormancy. So if you're planning on starting an asparagus patch, make that one of your very first priorities in your garden this year. Because if you do it right, and you plant that bed of asparagus, you only have to do it once and you'll be harvesting for a generation. That said, don't forget that you need to kind of let it be for three years until it gets established. All right. In the news, Modern Farmer also shared a post about supermarket food waste. And this particular article talked about what produce is most likely to get thrown away. Do you know what it is? Well, I'll save you the trouble. It's bananas. This article was so frustrating because what you find out as you read it is that a lot of bananas get thrown away before it's necessary to throw them away. And it all boils down to the fact that as consumers, we've been trained to have a preference for a perfectly yellow banana. And once it's not perfectly yellow anymore, we consider it undesirable. We're not going to buy it and it ends up going in the landfill. What a shame. 
Also in the news, CN Traveler shared a post about a fantastic botanic garden that is springing up in an unlikely place, Oman. In fact, Oman's botanic garden will be the largest in the world. Once this botanic garden is completed, I'm sure many people will want to add it to their bucket list. If you go, imagine what you'll get to see. Certain aloe species, as well as different kinds of flowers from Oman's mountains. The botanic garden will cover more than a thousand acres. And the gardens are aimed to celebrate Oman's biodiversity. So they're going to create eight individual habitats. And the mock-ups of some of the early drawings and sketches of what this will look like ultimately are pretty stunning. So if you're a world traveler, add this to your bucket list, no doubt. Also in the news, Cosmos Magazine shared a very interesting solution that was inspired by carnivorous plants. So here's the situation. In the shipping industry, there is this microbial muck that gets stuck to the sides of ships. And the global shipping industry has been trying to address this issue, but have never been able to find a way to get this stuff to stop sticking to ships. So they looked to the carnivorous pitcher plant. And what they noticed is that around the edge of this pitcher plant, before it can attract its prey and then kill it inside the, the tube, that outside area is an ultra slippery surface and there are all of these what they call nano wrinkles and those little wrinkles that go all around the top of the tube were the inspiration for the solution for the sides of these ships and it's working great. So the title of this article was called Carnivorous Plant Inspires Ultra Slippery Shipping Solution. In fact, one of my best podcasting friends does a shipping podcast. I think she does the only shipping podcast all about ships, big ships in the shipping industry. And I can't wait to talk to her next week because I have finally found a place where my topic and her topic intersect. So it'll be fun to share this article with her. All right. Also in the news, the BBC shared winning photos from the International Garden Photographer of the Year contest. And the picture that won was a picture from Marcio Cabral of Brazil with his picture entitled Cerrado Sunrise. Now, as you can imagine, these pictures are stupendous. Some of them actually look otherworldly. If you want to check them out, just head on over to the Facebook group and where you can type in search terms, just type in the search photo and this post will pop up and you can see all of the amazing images for yourself. In the dream guest segment is Robert Myers. Robert won the grand award from the Society of Garden Designers for a contemporary playscape that he called the Magic Garden at Hampton Court Palace. Talk about a wonderful family place. It's contemporary, and yet there are these mythical creatures that are part of the legacy of the palace, and they're incorporated into the play space. Robert said, we've incorporated playfulness and magic into every aspect of the garden. And I would say, judging by these pictures, mission accomplished. There's a 30 meter long dragon that has steam emitting out of its head. There's even a stone lion that magically disappears and reappears. 
And one of my favorite features is this giant dragon's nest in woven willow. And it looks like the kids can actually climb up into that. So that is really, really neat. Lots of wonderful details, loads of creativity. And that's why Robert Myers, the winner of the Grand Award from the Society of Garden Designers for his Magic Garden, made the Dream Guest segment this week. Anyway, check it out. If you're interested, head on over to the Facebook group, the listener community. Just type in magic in the search bar. This post will pop up. In Science This Week, ARS Technica shared a brilliant post that was called Hunting for the Ancient Lost Farms of North America. Turns out some plants that are now very difficult to track down used to be grown as crops and they include erect knotweed, not to be confused with its invasive cousin Asian knotweed, goosefoot, little barley, marsh elder, and maygrass. And one of the terrific things about this article is that you get to hear from someone who works at a university and their job is to try to track down these lost crops and then piece together clues about how these things were used a long, long time ago. Also in science, Botany One shared a fun post for Darwin Day. And the title of this article was, What Did Darwin Think Was His Most Satisfying Scientific Work? It Might Not Be What You Thought. And it turns out it was the primrose or cowslip. That was special to him because this plant exhibits heterostyly, meaning that it has two flower types or morphs, so pen and thrum. And there was this wonderful quote that the article shared, something that Darwin wrote in 1876 when he was looking back on all of his accomplishments. Here's what he wrote. I do not think anything in my scientific life has given me so much satisfaction as making out the meaning of the structure of heterostyled flowers. And of course, here he's referring to the common cowslip or primrose. So, now you can think of Darwin when you plant them in your garden. In shopping this week, Williams-Sonoma has released their spring collections, which includes not only the Peter Rabbit collection, but also a collection called the Damask Bunny. I say stay away from this if you have a tender heart with a thing for dishes because the dishes are gorgeous. And then when you put on these cute little pictures of bunnies, it's just too much. So I said cuteness alert when I shared this on social media. Some of these pieces are a little expensive, but you might find a piece or two that you'll want to include on your Easter or spring table. Very sweet. In inspiration, Emma Mitchell, someone I love to follow on Twitter and also the author of Making Winter, one of my favorite books this year, shared a post showing images of ladybugs hibernating in napweed seed heads. They were all over. She was just taking a little nature walk, stumbled on this, and then shared these images. So cool to see that. I didn't know they did that. Also an inspiration, the National Garden Bureau shared something on Pinterest, and it was their Million Bells Butter Pop. So these are the Million Bells flowers, the beautiful annual, the outer tip of the petal is white, but the center is yellow and it looks like popcorn, and they potted it up 
in a popcorn container and it's adorable. So that was on Pinterest. I shared it in the group. If you're looking for a fun way to maybe jazz up an outdoor table with a movie night theme, that is a great idea. And then finally, an inspiration, Margaret Wrinkle wrote an opinion piece called Let Your Winter Garden Go Wild. And here she's talking about the many unexpected, wonderful things that can happen when you leave your fall cleanup alone, when you let your fall garden just naturally stand through winter and wait to clean up in spring. And I love this one paragraph that she wrote. It started out this way. The best lesson I ever got in the blessing of a winter mess, dot, 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 you fill in the blank. But she had many wonderful examples, including finding a sweet baby bunny nest hidden among her rosemary. And that really tugged at my heartstrings because Every year, I have rabbits that love to nest in my herb garden. And yesterday, when I was downstairs, I noticed I have a mama bunny under my porch. And there she was, tucked up tight against the window as the sun was shining under the deck. And she's sitting there just sunning herself. So I called the boys down really quick and I said, let me tell you, Here's what a sun bath really looks like out in nature because we've got Sunny, our dog, and he doesn't really take sun baths and we don't have a cat. So we don't, the kids don't see a cat taking a sun bath the way they like to do that. So I had to talk to them about what a sun bath was and then show them this mama rabbit who was just could not be positioned more perfectly. Her little coat blowing in the wind, shining in the sun, and she's just huddled up tight against the window. It was really, really cool. But anyway, I love this piece that Margaret wrote called Let Your Garden Go Wild. And it was featured in the New York Times this past week. All right. In honor of today's guest, Wendy Kyung Spray, I decided to focus on a theme of memory for the quotable segment this week. Of course, for Wendy, had she not pursued writing her book, Many of the wonderful stories and memories from her parents' childhood would have been lost to her. So I thought this was a fitting theme for today. The first one is by Thalassa Crusoe, To Everything There Is a Season, 1973. Scents bring memories, and many memories bring nostalgic pleasure. We would be wise to plan for this when we plant a garden. Here's one from E.V. Boyle, Seven Gardens in a Palace, 1900. Yet other gardens exist whose memory in secret cherished is shrouded with a tender mystery. Lovelier than all gardens we have known, graced with the far-off charm of the unattainable are they. The gardens we have wished for but have never seen. Words cannot paint them, yet the longing for them does still possess our hearts with visions of their beauty. Here's one from Reginald Farrer, Among the Hills, 1911. Beautiful things, perhaps, are never quite so perfectly beautiful as when they have passed beyond the untrustworthy criticism of eyesight into the safe guardianship of memory. 
This last one is from Donald Colross Petey, Flowering Earth, 1948. When you try to visualize this flowering society, when you call up all the flowers you can remember and their tints and shapes and scents, the climates they like, the scenery they adorn, the memories they bring back, your mind begins to riot with flowering. And of all this color and perfume and delight, there seems no end or order. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, the Chinese Kitchen Garden with Wendy Kyung Spray. There's a lot to love about Wendy Kyung Spray. She was raised in a family with amazing culinary and gardening traditions. At one point in her book, she mentions that her parents would go to a restaurant one weekend and end up recreating an even better version of that dish from the previous weekend right in their own kitchen using ingredients from their own garden. Can you imagine? Wendy grew up in suburban Maryland, right outside D.C., so she grew up between two cultures, and I think that makes her a particularly excellent guide for introducing us to Asian vegetables and Chinese cooking. Finally, Wendy's book is so much more than just a cooking or gardening book. The food and the vegetables are part of her family history. The stories give the garden and the recipes significant meaning. Without gardening, Wendy's family would have never survived the hardships of living in China. Without the recipes, Wendy would have only a very narrow glimpse into her family's history. During today's chat, Wendy will read excerpts from many of my favorite parts in the book, and she'll also share many of the Chinese vegetables like lotus root, bitter melon, stem lettuce, daylilies, and Chinese cucumbers, and traditional recipes that will make you drool. Let me just say that if Wendy offered up a week of dinners made by her parents, and it definitely included her dad's famous dumplings, I'd be working really hard to win that silent auction item, let me tell you. There are a few things that I'd like to draw your attention to in this episode. First, the garden as a point of connection. By asking about vegetables, Wendy's father would open up about his life in China, offering up stories that Wendy had never heard before, and they're very touching. Once again, this book is way more than a book about gardening or cooking, because in Wendy's family, you can't talk about gardening or cooking without affection for and connection to her family, her heritage, and her own self-discovery. As a genealogist, that really put Wendy's book over the top for me. Second, gardening to cook on a grand scale. So many times I talk to folks about only growing what you know your family will eat. And for most of us, that narrows down the menu out in the garden to less than 10 items, 
But Wendy's family is much more sophisticated, and their garden palette includes over three dozen types of vegetables every summer. An added bonus is that Wendy's parents have shared their family recipes in this book, some of which have never been written down, let alone shared publicly. So it's a true treasure for us, and it's a wonderful legacy for Wendy's family. Finally, delight in the new. I can't imagine that you won't hear about a new vegetable or technique or tip from Wendy today that's not going to blow your mind a little bit. From blanching garlic chives to making your own luffa sponges, Wendy's family just does so many things with their garden harvest. I don't know if they realize, but I think of them as a sort of gardening, cooking, best practice powerhouse. Finally, Wendy's book is organized by season. That makes it so handy because you'll learn what to grow in each season and what to cook with that season's harvest. And that's particularly useful when you're charting new territory. It's time for you to meet Wendy Kyung Spray and through her wonderful stories, her family, and get ready for a beautiful and approachable introduction to Asian vegetables. Ready or not, you're about to want to grow your very own Chinese kitchen garden. Well, hi there, Wendy. Welcome to the Still Growing Podcast. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Well, right at the beginning of your book, you dedicate your book to your parents and your grandparents, but especially to your grandmother, who you never got to meet, but who you feel a special connection to. Your book is as much about your family and your family history as it is about creating a Chinese kitchen garden. Share with us a little sampling of what you wrote in your preface, and then talk about how the book became a vehicle for learning more about your family history. Sure. Here's a part from the preface on page eight. I am truly thrilled and humbled that you're reading this book. This is not only because I hope you will find it useful as you grow the vegetables that my family has known for generations, but because among the smooth, sweet, sweet potato leaves, the tangled luffa gourd vines, and the giant winter melons is my family's story. While I personally have work to do in tracing my history back beyond the fuzzy tales I've learned about my grandparents, I know that simple chores in my garden or weekend dinners with my parents are all made up of their cumulative experiences at the same time tumultuous and wonderful. To make sense of my own story, I had to know my parents' stories. Um, you know, I used to describe my book as half how to grow these vegetables and half how to cook these vegetables and what to do with them, but I'm starting to describe it more as a third memoir, a third how to grow and a third how to cook these vegetables. It was pretty awesome to be able to make this you know, a little bit of an autobiography. And for sure, I mean, as I was researching how to grow and cook these vegetables, it was a lot of learning about the way my parents used to do things when they were in China, when it wasn't just, you know, tending your suburban backyard garden, but actually farming for survival and learning a bit about that time. I was probably lucky enough to not have to know. Um, I grew up in suburban Maryland, right outside D.C., uh, we lived a pretty privileged life, so my sister and I did not know 
the starvation, the political unrest, and all these things that that my parents kind of tried to shield us from, I think. So, um, and that were also difficult for my parents to tell. So by learning about the vegetables, we actually learned about a whole way of life that we didn't know. Yeah, I, I've done a lot of genealogy work on my own family history and my husband's family. And I know very well that sometimes it's difficult to get people to talk about the things you really want to talk about. And so you end up having to talk about kind of more minor stories or, or kind of off-topic issues and then hopefully get to those other things that you're really interested in talking about. And I think you said a couple of times in your book that basically by talking about the vegetables, that was your gateway into your family history. You could kind of ease into some of these other issues and and things that you were interested in that you'd never heard about before. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I dedicated this book to my grandmother, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, when we were little, we used to my sister and I would eavesdrop on stories that my father and my uncle would talk, you know, would tell. And they were always, they were always interesting, partially because we felt like we were eavesdropping and they were like talking in hushed <laughs> whispers. So we knew something juicy was going on. Um, but especially whenever um, stories about my grandmother would pop up, they would pop up for like a moment and be done. And then it would be like, okay, let's not talk about it anymore. It would be like that kind of thing. And um, there were times when, I would say to my mom, I'm going to go ask him more about my grandmother. And she'd be like, no, no, don't ask him because he'll get mad. And, you know, being young is like, okay, whatever. It's but okay, fine. So, you know, never really asked him questions about my grandmother, even though the little bits that I've heard, like I, you know, I learned she was a hard worker. I heard she was, you know, really tenacious and probably a little bit crazy and just really like a really strong woman that I just wanted to to learn more about. But it wasn't until I got older that I realized that it's not that he would he would be mad about it, but it's that he would be sad about it. So it was just like he just he just wouldn't talk about her. She died a few years before I was born. And learning about these stories of vegetables, I was able to actually, you know, hear little nuggets of of tales that involve my grandmother. And I found that I was able to push a little bit more, too. And then the stories would, would stop abruptly many times. But I was able to be like, oh, so you guys brought the radishes to the market and my grandmother was there and blah, blah, you know. So, yeah, for sure, it was a vehicle to learn more about my grandmother. Yeah. And no question, there are stories in here that you would have never known. And what a shame that would have been had you not had those conversations. Because sometimes even the most mundane little story can be the little gem that gets passed on through your family because it contains some little indicator of who you are, of what your family values, what they stand for. So there are a lot of great stories in this book. I think people will enjoy it. And I've always yeah. said there's a connection. I think, you know, there's there's the roots we put down in the garden, but there's also our roots. And so I think gardening is very grounding. I think gardening and genealogy go together. And I, I think gardeners are a little sentimental. So I think it all goes together. Oh, yeah. In a featured author segment on the Timber Press website, you shared this delightful glimpse into the challenge of trying to capture what your parents do so effortlessly in the kitchen. 
And in this one question, you were talking about your mom and you said, I would tell her that timber press needs exact measurements. And she would yell, (laughs) maybe one teaspoon, maybe two, whatever you want. On one occasion, she was cooking a dish that she'd already given you the recipe for, and you watched in shock as she changed a couple of the ingredients. And in her usual style, she told you that sometimes she uses sauce X and sometimes she uses sauce Y. And once again, she said, whatever you want. And I thought it was so wonderful that you were able to document at least some of the magic that your parents possess when it comes to cooking because there are wonderful recipes, some of them secret family traditions that are shared in your book. But I chuckled because like everything our parents do, some of it's science and some of it's art. And the artistry of who they are and what they do and how they do things can sometimes be elusive. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a really good way of describing it. I have to have you share this excerpt from the bottom of page 10. Oh, yeah. Because I think it kind of gives people an indication of your family life when it comes to the kitchen and cooking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My parents are both true gourmets and skilled home cooks. My mom makes incredible stir fries, soups and stews, and is an expert at traditional food preservation. My father is a master at crafting handmade noodles, dumplings, steamed buns, and breads. These are all foods that Chinese people savor, but few can create. We have always been a family of culinary connoisseurs. My sister and I grew up eating unfamiliar and delicious dishes in the best Chinese restaurants and then enjoying even better versions of the meal at home when my parents recreated the food we tasted the previous weekend or that they saw in a Chinese movie or remembered from a joint they ate at at a Hong Kong restaurant decades ago. My father has even recreated a dumpling filling made from an heirloom Chinese squash that he tasted in his village in China in the 1960s. As children, my sister and I could mark time with the familiar sound of my mom cooking in the kitchen. First the chopping, then the hum of the kitchen range fan, then the hiss of garlic and greens dropping into a hot wok. The steel wok spatula clanged as she cooked and then scrape, scrape, scrape as the stir-fry was transferred onto the serving plate. Finally, the fan would turn off, and the sudden quiet meant dinner was ready. That was essentially every evening of our weeknight lives. (laughs) Well, and how lucky were you, right? This is... Yeah. I mean, just reading it, there were so many little things in these two little paragraphs that I thought just told the story so well. I'm sitting here going, oh my gosh, you guys would go out to eat and then the next weekend your parents would recreate it and actually make it better. I can tell you that's not a common experience for people. My own kids would not know what that is. (laughs) Right. And they're so... They find the challenge in that. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. We are foodies in that as soon as we finish breakfast, we're talking about what we're going to have for lunch. And as soon as we finish lunch, (laughs) we're talking about where we're going to go for dinner. And my parents are the same way. It's like they will, you know, have something in a Chinese restaurant and then like mull it over and discuss and discuss and talk about the type of flour or the type of whatever and um, and and keep trying it until they, they've perfected it. Well, and they must have pretty discerning palates, too. If they can break down recipes the way that they do, and, and sometimes these flavors are so sophisticated. And honestly, I'm reading a lot of this going, oh my gosh, I've never tried this. I've never tried this. I've never tried this. So for right. most people who aren't familiar with Chinese cooking, this will really be an adventure. 
Yeah, yeah. And you know, my dad's working on right now. It's pretty interesting. He he was, t- you know, as I was working on this book, and this this is not in the book at all, but as I was working on this, and he was kind of telling me how, um, you know, I've never been to China. And even if I were to go to China, I, I would not be able to see the village that he grew up in, which is really what I would want to see in China. I mean, most of my family um, is in Hong Kong, and I've been to Hong Kong several times. But like this, this Sandong China that my parents were both born and grew up in, I really, I, I have no picture in my head. I mean, I've made jokes that, you know, it's just like from Bruce Lee movies. Like that's the only picture mm-hmm. I have in my head. So as he was telling me these stories about even like how the streets were laid out and how the the little homes were were laid out on the streets and like where the little um gardens and their you know and then the farther off fields were all situated um it was it was fascinating and and one thing i learned was that every family had a mill in their backyard like a you know to grind to grind corn mm. um Typically not rice, because from what he was telling me, rice was for the rich people. Oh. Um, corn was for your your poor people. And then sweet potatoes were for your really poor people. Oh. Um, so anyway, he ate a lot of corn. And what he's trying to do right now in you know, 2018 is to create these, um, I, what I would imagine as like probably polenta, kind of thing like he's trying to create this mashed corn patty that he used to he used to make and um and it's kind of interesting because he's buying like different grinds of cornmeal to try to recreate it oh, but wow. you know he's he's still working on it well and tell us why that village isn't there anymore yeah i mean that that time was tough for them it was sort of it was the onset of um communism so um, I mean, his home was was actually taken by um, the 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 village elders who who determined that their house was too big for um, just a typical family. So, um, you know, those are the those are the stories that were too hard to tell for him. So I, I may have heard that from my mom or just little bits and pieces here that here and there that I've put together. But, um, you know, the house is gone. The village is gone. My uncle actually tried to to find it on Google Earth. But, you know, apparently it just looks completely different. It's just, you know, time has these are the days of, you know, no, no plumbing, um, no electricity. You know, it's just in my in my dad's lifetime, obviously. But, you know, something that I can I can barely even imagine. So. Yeah, it's almost surreal to think that that can happen in a single lifetime. In fact, it's a great segue into my next question, because you note in the book that in the 60s, your dad makes his way from rural China, he goes to Hong Kong with your mother, and then finally to the suburbs of the United States, and you end up in the DC area. But throughout your book, you share these pictures of your dad's garden, and the property that he's at today and it, it's something straight out of a Chinese fairy tale, what he's living in right now with the ducks and the geese. I mean, it's gorgeous. There's this big pond. Tell us about it in your own words. I just thought if I ever get back to D.C., I want to come see your dad's garden. It just sounds amazing. Yeah, feel free and let me know if you're around. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's gorgeous. I mean, it's you, you you could while away days there. And and actually, we've joked about how my parents could be totally self-sufficient living there. I mean, between their garden and they have um, 
they have fruit trees. They, you know, they, he has peaches and Japanese plums and Chinese um, jujubes and other fruits and the fish and the pond. I mean, there's, there's, there's always fish to catch <laughs> along a, a long row of amazing fishing poles in the garage. He, they they could be totally self-sufficient there. It's it's beautiful. I mean, they're weeping willows that my dad planted. Apparently, weeping willows are really easy to root. He bought one or two weeping willow trees when they first moved in, maybe some 25 years ago, and um, stuck some branches in the mud. And eventually, they created trees that, that dot the entire um, perimeter of the pond. So it's it's really just gorgeous. I do love willow trees. I know they can be messy, but I have a soft spot for them as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I need to have you share the way you organized your book because it's so unique and clever. And if you wouldn't mind, especially tell us about how you introduce the vegetables that you feature in your book, which I'm very excited to speak with you about because you introduce us to so many varieties that I think are upgrades from what we're all currently planting in our gardens. And I, I can't wait to talk to you about that. Yeah, well, the the book is organized by season. Um, At the beginning of each season, I try to give some general gardening advice too. So if you were if you were new to gardening, you could probably get everything you needed to know about how to um, prepare, grow, tend a garden um, from this book. And then each chapter includes vegetables that are at their prime during that season. So, you know, a lot of the fruiting vegetables are in the summer chapter. A lot of the leafy greens are in the fall chapter because Asian leafy greens tend to do best in the fall um, in that cool weather that they love so much. And then for each vegetable, I start with how to grow the vegetable and then how to use the vegetable either traditionally or in your own recipes. And uh, and I've included the sprinkling of recipes throughout the book too. So hopefully it's very useful. Well, I think it is very useful. You mentioned in your book, uh, I'm, I'm going to go a little bit out of order here because I want to start with spring, but you just brought up the fact that so much of what's gr- growing in the Chinese garden can be found doing the best in the fall. So in the fall garden, I always think of as a second spring. So for gardeners who are listening to this and who are curious and want to try to grow some of these vegetables, they could potentially grow their their regular garden in spring and summer. And then when, when they transition into fall, they can have their Chinese kitchen garden going full swing if they plan it correctly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's take a tour through the seasons, the stories, the vegetables that are featured in your book. We'll start with spring. And you begin with bamboo on page 31. And I read this and I was smiling to myself because I was actually in D.C. this past summer. We toured a garden that had bamboo in it. And some of the gardeners were just kind of turning their nose up at it and or were very upset that bamboo was in a suburban D.C. garden because they see it through a lens of being so invasive. But Your presentation, I thought, was very straightforward and also very balanced. I just thought it might be helpful, since we've got you on the line here, to have you help listeners kind of adjust their mindset a bit when it comes to bamboo. Okay, well, I should start off by saying that bamboo can absolutely be a nemesis. 
So I just want to make that really clear. Um, I'm not suggesting that your, you know, your your average backyard gardener grow bamboo. Um, that would be a way to be a very bad neighbor. I actually have a guy who lives behind me and over to the right. I don't know. His his bamboo is probably 60 feet away and it will send runners down that will break up my, my raised beds. And he, it actually makes me very upset. Um, so yes, be a good neighbor and do not plant bamboo unless you're going to take care with it. And I do give some, some suggestions in my book, but basically you need to dig a, uh, dig a trench and, and put in a pretty thick barrier, which is, which is a lot of work. And especially in with, with our clay soil here, that's going to be difficult to do. So I wouldn't suggest it unless you, um, you know, unless you want to grow some ornamental clumping bamboo and you could, you could do that pretty neatly too. You still have to be careful or, or grow in containers or something. The pictures in my book are from my dad's property and he has eight acres. So he, he definitely has room to grow some bamboo and it would take a very, very, very long time for him to start annoying his neighbors. So he can do it. And he has some gorgeous bamboo too. He has some black bamboo towards the back of the pond and that is just gorgeous. I think I have some pictures posted on, on my Instagram at Asian vegetables. But but yeah, another, you know, another thing that people can do is forage for bamboo. So if you know of a stand of bamboo near you, as long as they're not spraying or you know, some of our roadside bamboo is, is sprayed with chemicals to, to try to eradicate it. So as long as it's like wild and it's not being sprayed, um, you could always try foraging for bamboo, which I think would be a fun thing for people to do. You do have to keep in mind that bamboo is... Um, is toxic. So it has to be boiled for like 45 minutes or so. Um, and the water dumped out before you eat it. But, you know, we've all, we, a lot of us have tried bamboo shoots in, in Chinese restaurants and, and all that, or even like, you know, in a vegetable blend in the freezer section or something, but fresh spring bamboo, there is, there's nothing like it. It's like the only way I can compare it. If you have, have you had fresh bamboo, Jennifer? I have never had it. Okay, okay. The only way I can describe the difference is like it's it's like eating, you know, canned peas your whole life and then you finally grow some spring, you know, English garden peas and wow. and trying that. Okay. It's it's like a completely different thing. Reading about bamboo in your book, uh, first of all, I didn't know it was toxic, so I was kind of thinking about it in terms of apples, you know, where they both have that level of toxicity, but you'd have to eat so much of it for it to build up in your system where it, where it would be a problem. Definitely. But the other thing is, is it's known apparently as the king of the forest vegetables, you wrote. And the other thing that I thought was interesting is how you harvest those new shoots. And you said you just simply kick it over. And that reminded me of when I talked to this DC gardener that had it in her backyard. She said, you know what? It's not that big of a deal for me to control. She's like, in the spring, I go out, I kick over, or I step over all of the new shoots. And that controls that growth so that I don't have, you know, this forest growing out of control. But harvesting them is not so terrible, it sounds like. No, no, it is. It is very easy. And actually, you know, I, I did a video of this process and I was wearing a flip-flop. So yeah, oh, wow. it's very easy. Yeah. That's great. Um, except we pick them up and put them in a wheelbarrow and take out the hearts and they're just amazing. Mm. And I will say they're sort of allergenic. I mean, my mom and I, I remember specifically it was Mother's Day um, this past year because I was like, oh my God, if I kill my mother on Mother's Day, that's going to be really 
really bad. But we both, we were sitting there and we're like, hmm, what will happen if we actually eat this raw? So um, we we both tried some and, and the effect is like, you know, um, do you ever eat like a lot of pineapple and your mouth just feels like kind of a, a tingling sort of allergenic feel? Yeah, um, or with strawberries it, sometimes. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's like, so so that kind of effect happens. And my mom... Um, my mom ate a little bit and she, I actually chewed it and spit it out. She actually ate it and she said that she, you know, her throat was kind of hurting. She kind of like coughed a little bit, but I have met people who have said, oh no, I never boil it. I just eat it fresh and it's amazing. Oh, really? So, um, yeah, so I, I you huh. know, it's not, you're not going to die. You're prob- probably not going to die, but it's, if you, um, if you boil the bamboo shoots first, it just mm-hmm. removes that, um, that allergenic kind of feel. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I have to ask you, I'm just I'm just curious, is you introduce the vegetables and you give the Latin, the botanical name, the correct name for the vegetable. And then you also share the Mandarin pronunciation, the Cantonese pronunciation, and the the writing, the symbols. If you were to literally translate the meaning for bamboo in Mandarin and Cantonese, do you know what that means? Um, let's see, literally translated accent. Um, it, it literally would mean bamboo shoots. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know how sometimes I mean, it's like cool. in another language, it would be like, oh, this means heart of the sun or, you know what I mean? Right, Something right. like I that. I that's a better answer. No, <laughs> Maybe there'll be a better answer for some of the other ones, but bamboo shoots is literally bamboo shoots. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I tell you what, yeah. if we, stu- as we're talking, if we stumble on one and you're like, ooh, ooh this one has a really good literal translation, definitely okay. share it with us. That's great. Okay. Well, one of the plants that I I'm very eager to try after reading your book is garland chrysanthemum. And I just had to ask if these were one of your favorites in the garden. Um, I should say yes, shouldn't I? <laughs> I mean, it's I, I like it because it's really different from all the others. I would say a lot of the um, greens are sort of interchangeable somewhat as far as, you know, what you can do with them and, and how they taste. I mean, you can stir fry all of them. You can steam all of them, boil all of them. You can put them all in noodle soups, but garland chrysanthemum is a little bit different, which makes it kind of interesting. Um, it's most different in taste and flavor, I think. It also wilts pretty quickly, more quickly than your sturdier ones like the bok choys. Um, but if you've ever... Or if you, even if you've ever like gotten up close to a chrysanthemum, like just your fall blooming ornamental chrysanthemums, they have like a really intense floral fragrant. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's it's similar to that. I would say there's a similar fragrance. Um, it's a different variety, of course. And then if you've ever been to a dim sum restaurant and you've had chrysanthemum tea, which is made from the flowers of chrysanthemums, yet another variety. It's similar in flavor to that, too. Chrysanthemum greens are kind of neat. And I I tell in the book about how they're usually eaten, which is imagine a cold winter day and, you know, you're gathered around a hot pot in the middle of the table with your family. Um, There's like a broth going. You're throwing in vegetables and meat and just kind of enjoying. And at the very end, when all that broth is is flavored, you kind of throw in the greens. They wilt pretty quickly, and you have this really fragrant soup. 
So that's that's a nice way to, to have the greens. I love it. And I have to say, I think your next book should be taking the gardener to the Chinese restaurant. What should we order? <laughs> what, yeah. what should we appreciate? So I, I love that you mentioned the tea because I'd highlighted that experience that you talk about in the book. And, and that's what made me really curious about it. Yeah. You also talk about garlic chives, which is something I'm familiar with, but you share this little tip and it's on how to produce tender yellow chives. And I thought, oh my gosh, I totally want to try this. So tell us about how to do this and why you're doing it. And then maybe talk a little bit about this duck recipe, because this is one where I read and I thought, I can do this one. This one looks great. Oh yeah, that's very easy. Okay, so first with the yellow chives, they're basically they're basically blanched. Um, they're blanched. So okay, so here's the progression. Um, early spring, your garlic chives, which are perennial, start to come up, and uh, you shear them. Um, and as the the new growth comes in, they're they're really tender and and delicious. I mean, garlic chives are really great in spring. So as you take cuttings from that, your next growth that comes up, you might cover with a pot or, you know, what what other method you might choose to blanch vegetables, you know, hill, hill it up or, you know, generally covering it with a pot is probably the best idea. Okay. And that just deprives the chives from sunlight. And then they, you know, they grow yellow and tender and they still have that, that mild garlicky taste. They're, they're delicious. And is the flavor, um, because they've been grown that way, is the flavor just a little less intense? I'm trying to imagine what it's like. Yeah, I think so. They're just a little more delicate, um, sort of a more delicate garlic flavor. Sometimes garlic chives can be intense, um, especially when you use them in, in Chinese cuisine, which is, you know, as vegetable. Like you don't use them as, you know, snip them on top of your baked potato or whatever. Um, they're they're used as a vegetable, so it can be really strong. So, so yeah, the, the yellow chives are just little more delicate in taste and definitely more tender. As garlic chives grow, they can sometimes get a little grassy, especially towards the end of the season. And Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, so blanching them is a good way to kind of extend that season too. Well, and the reason I love the duck recipe is I love any time I'm reading a recipe and you give me permission to get part of the ingredient completely (laughs) done for me in a deli and I just have to pick it up and then add a few things at home. And that's really what you're advocating here. And I'm excited to try this one. Yeah, it's great. It's really easy. And the the recipe calls for um, the flowering chive stems, which which is my favorite part. I, I love those more than the garlic chives and the yellow chives. I feel like the garlic flavor is a little more subdued and there's uh, the stems are there, there's more of a crunch to them. It's almost like it's almost it's almost it's, you know, it feels silly saying this, but it's almost like a very tender, thin bean. I mean, it, there's there's a um, there's there's a crispness to it that I really like and it takes just a couple minutes to cook. Well, that's another bonus because who has time, right? We don't want recipes where we're taking hours and hours and hours. They need to be the exception and not the rule. So, oh, yeah, right. And for people who are curious, it's called stir fried flowering chive with roasted duck. So easy and sounds delicious. Yeah. Now, uh, you introduced summer. So we're done with spring. We're heading into summer. And for every section of your book, you do this wonderful introduction into the season. And you often give us a story of that season in your family. I was so charmed by this story that you shared as you begin the summer section of your book. 
I thought it would be wonderful for listeners to be able to hear you share that. And then let's talk about the intensity of the summer garden. Yeah. Okay. I'll read you the intro to the summer section. Summer is when family and friends of my parents are particularly excited to see my father for he often greets them with bags of freshly harvested vegetables. Having honed his skills from a lifetime of farming for survival and then gardening for pleasure, his expertise in growing vegetables makes summer a time of abundant harvests with greens, squashes, fruits, and even fish and eggs to share with his lucky circle of friends. Years ago, my parents invited their friend John and his family over for dinner. John was a successful businessman, and like my parents, originally from the province of Sandong. He spent his entire life, adult life, in America. As he often does, my father made dumplings for dinner. That night, they were filled with summer squash, shrimp, and pork belly, and seasoned with rice wine, soy sauce, and sesame oil. My father's dumplings are always incredible. Folded into fat, nearly bursting purses with thin skins that somehow never break open, and juicy, flavorful fillings that change throughout the year depending upon what's in season. But on this night, John didn't just compliment my father like a typical polite dinner guest. John cried. Turns out, having lost his mother as a boy and having left Sandong at a young age, John had a taste of memories from long, long ago. Something in his combination of ingredients and my father's old-fashioned dumpling-making skills transported him back to childhood in China. Food can do that in an instant. John's experience is common among immigrants who taste the beloved but long-forgotten food from their home countries. When we work in our own gardens, we are able to experiment with new vegetables but also seek out old favorites. While I try several new varieties of heirloom tomatoes each year, I also make space to grow traditional vegetables such as long beans or luffa gourds, which I use to experiment with my mom's recipes. Sometimes I grow Chinese vegetables just to connect in some symbolic way with the ancestors I never knew. Mm. Wendy, thank you so much for reading that. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, were you sitting there when that happened? They told me this story, so I wasn't there, but it... It happens. I mean, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about summer in the garden. It's such a busy time. There's so much going on and and the growth can happen so fast. You have to be out there practically every day harvesting, paying attention to pests and growth and everything. Yeah, you do. And especially the ones I just mentioned, the long beans and the gourds. those two in particular grow like crazy. I mean, you, you really do have to be there almost every day. And yeah, I mean, things go bad really fast too. I mean, with the pests and a drought or, or whatever, whatever challenge you might have. So, so in my book, I talk about um, the way Chinese farmers and gardeners would do it, which is essentially uh, a lot of observation. I remember my dad, it was probably shortly after I wrote this chapter about pests. Um, my dad was showing me this new bug he had discovered in the garden and he had discovered them in the tips of bunching onions. And he was showing me that they make these little holes, maybe two or three inches from the tip and then burrow into the top 
and he crushed one open and you could you could see you could see a little family that it was beginning to make right in the tip of the punching <laughs> idea. And you know, and that's you don't get that from a book. I mean, I, I work full time, so I try to I try to learn as much as I can from from talking to people and reading information online and reading books, but I doubt he knew the name of that insect that was living in the top of his bunching onions. But um he knew exactly what they look like their habits and how to get rid of them and save his crops. So yeah, you absolutely need to get out there. Mm. Well, and this is the benefit of having gardening as a generational activity in your family because you can totally trust what your dad is telling you. And folks who are trying gardening on their own and they don't have a family member to ask or a neighbor that's doing gardening, it can be really challenging because who do you trust? How do you get that information? So again, the fact that this is part of your family's legacy is this tradition of gardening and then sharing all of this. I love that he pulled you aside and said, come take a look at this and then showed you that. That's that's just great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, there are so many wonderful gardening tips. And I love that you're so friendly for beginning gardeners as well. You're not talking down and yet you're not dumbing down any of your information. There's a lot of sophisticated things that you share in your book that I think people will be very interested in. One in particular is some of these gardening tips that you talk about that your dad uses in his garden you describe the benefits of your dad's sunken beds. And in this age of raised bed and, and mounding things up, we don't often talk anymore about the benefits of having sunken beds. So I thought, let's have you read this little snippet about this that you wrote on page 63, and then maybe talk about how this works, how this actually comes together in your dad's garden. Yeah, they're actually built up off the ground, but they're but they have a sunken surface, which is nice. Um, so I'll read a paragraph from that section. In my father's intensive planting beds, which are built up off the ground, he sets his mustards and other greens in a slightly sunken surface so that any irrigation happens in the planting area. These vegetables have shallow root systems and like frequent watering for best growth. For other vegetables in his garden, he uses the ridge and furrow method. As with pest control, it's important to have good knowledge about each plant. Rather than indiscriminately watering the whole garden every morning, learn the specific needs of what you're growing. Lettuces like frequent watering, beans, gourds, eggplants, other fruiting vegetables require heavy watering when flowering and when fruits are setting. Radishes and other root crops like regular watering only in the early stages. Um, yeah, so you can see a really good example of what these separate planting beds look like um, in pictures in the book. It just makes a lot of sense because you're not wasting resources on watering the whole garden or you don't have to go in there with a the tiller and till the whole thing up every every spring. I mean, he does have some good soil to begin with, I will say that. In my backyard, I have a lot of tree roots, so I do need something off the ground and not in the ground. So my dad's raised beds are, let's see, if I look at a picture, they probably are like maybe a foot or two two feet off the ground. It's nice because you never step in the planting areas either, so you don't have to worry about compacting the soil. When he waters, 
These days, he waters his garden mostly from pumped in water from the pond, actually. So imagine the nutrients in that water. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's saved for the, uh, the actual planting area. And you know, what's really funny too is you also have a smaller area that you have to weed. I mean, obviously you want to keep a nice and tidy garden if you can. Um, his garden generally looks really amazing. But, um, on, during times when he just, he, he just wants to keep his weeds under control, he can just take care of the stuff in the actual planting area. Mm. One day there was a ton of purslane on the paths. So we just cut that down and, and had ourselves a nice little dinner. Oh, that's great. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you kick off your summer garden and you feature amaranth. And I read that your sister grows some in a pot on her balcony. So obviously very easy to grow. Even home gardeners with limited space should be able to grow it. It's your dad's favorite vegetable, you wrote. And I thought, who better than to have you introduce us to this? What will listeners love about amaranth? I know you mentioned that it can be a spinach substitute, but I'd love to have you introduce us to it. Yeah, amaranth is a great green that's actually eaten probably all over the world. One of the first times I had, well, one of the first times I think I was aware that I was having it was um, on my honeymoon in St. Lucia. The West Indians will will use it for callaloo. So it might be known as callaloo in, in parts of the world. We it, And there are many varieties of amaranth. You'll usually recognize it because oftentimes you'll see the sort of red and green variegated type. Um, and it's just gorgeous. It's it's related to the the love lies bleeding plant, the ornamental. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's very easy to grow. I will say that you know, similar to bamboo, there are many varieties and th- different tastes. So if you try a type of amaranth and you're not really into it, then just keep trying different varieties until you find something you really like. Well, and I like here too. You said that your sister found that the amaranth greens available at her Asian grocer were too tough. So that's what drove her to want to grow her own. And that was my first indicator that, oh, these are all very, very different. So you can't assume that if you grow some and you don't like it, that all of it's bad. You have to kind of try some different varieties, apparently. Yeah, for sure, especially with amaranth. So the type that my dad grows is just... A lot of these are just sort of family heirlooms. You know, he he got seeds somewhere um, from a friend or whatever and has been saving seeds for the past 20 years. So... I have to ask, too, before I ask my next question, did you take some of these pictures in this book or was this all done by a different photographer? I did. I actually took a a handful of these photos and I'm pretty excited about them because I do love photography, too, but I'm not a great photographer. So the fact that some of my photographs ended up in this book are are pretty, um, pretty exciting to me. Yeah. Well, I had to ask, you know, there are pictures of this next vegetable coming up that I thought were very, very interesting and very intriguing to me. And it has to do with this bitter melon. What I really liked, first of all, is the structure and the growing habit is totally captivating. You wrote that it splits open on its own if it goes past maturity. And I thought that the picture of it on page 74 was something else because you show 
but sliced. And it's got these rickrack ridges. So when you're slicing it, it's an extremely attractive vegetable to serve. What are your thoughts on bitter melon for total newbies, people who read about it in your book and want to try it? Um, I think bitter melon is something that everyone should try. And it's really funny because when I started talking about bitter melon years ago, I would say most people had not heard of it. These days, I would say, you know, in the past year, I've met more and more people who have not only had it, but actually like it. I usually bring it with me when I do talks, just because I think it's a fun one to try. And I would say, you know, a few people are like, ah, I'm not having that again. Um, I, but I would say that most people just sort of like they're chewing and they're looking at me and they're nodding and they're smiling. And it's like... <laughs> I can't tell if they're being polite or, I mean, they say that they like it. I usually bring it pickled just because I think it kind of tames the bitterness a little bit. But I will say that it is legit bitter. I also name some other tastes in the culinary world that are bitter just so people are used to it. I mean, I think I think a lot of it is just like knowing what to expect. I mean, if, if you're prepared for this to be bitter and you know that it's bitter, I think that it, it kind of helps a little bit. It's also gotten a lot of press recently because it's found to be really helpful. A ton of people I've met have mentioned that they've read about or heard about either from their doctors or nutritionists or whatever, that um, bitter melon is great for diabetes. One woman I met said that she uses it for her feet. And I was like, I don't know okay. what she's doing. You know, whatever it is, it's helping her feet, you know, people juice it, you know, and it's interesting too, similar to what I was saying about the bamboo shoots, it's, you know, you should boil it first, but I've met people who don't. Same thing with the bitter melon. I mean, I give directions for how we prepare it, which is to slit it in half, scoop out the white pithy insides with a spoon and discard that along with the giant seeds, and then just eat the little C-shaped rickrack things that you were mentioning. And and that's sort of the, the juicy, delicious, bitter part. But I've also met people, I met this one guy who said he juices it and he throws the entire thing in his Vitamix um, along with a full apple (laughs) that he just throws in there with the stem and everything. Um, So there are the instructions that I give, which are pretty general. And then there's variations on how people will try them. Wow. I would have never guessed that. Okay. Let's transition. On page 79, you share this really fun aspect of growing bottle gourds that I did not know about. You're using them as a decorative accent. Yeah. Um, I don't know where my dad got these seeds this one year, but this one year he was, a, he's usually, he's like me. He's always currently obsessed with something. And this year he was, <laughs> he was obsessed with these um, miniature bottle gourds. I mean, obviously we've seen the the bigger ones that you can dry and use yeah. for birdhouses or different crafts and things like that. And of course those can be eaten too before they get to that birdhouse stage. Yeah. Um, but these miniature ones were really adorable. And, um, you know, Chinese people, are, we're, we're a very superstitious people. And um, the the bottle gourds are, these little ones uh, are called daji hulu, which loosely translates a good luck gourd. And that basically means like, you know, everything straight ahead will be smooth and, and good and, and perfect. So they're not only decorative, but they, they also um, are a symbol of good luck. So um, I also talk about 
hanging them with a red string and the the color red is is a is a good luck color it represents fortune and joy so the year that my dad grew these little miniature gourds we had them all over the place hanging oh, wow. with red strings and and the funny thing is after i think it was probably again right after i wrote this chapter i saw them on wreaths that they were selling at whole foods and oh. they were gorgeous it was like this gorgeous autumnal wreath with um, a little miniature bottle gourd tied on the bottom and they were like $60. And if you're a gardener, <laughs> imagine how much money you could rake in if you made your own wreaths. Oh, honestly, for sure. How did they attach them to the wreath? Um, I think because of that bottle shape, they were able to just tie them right around the neck and then just uh, tie them to the wreath. Oh, yeah. that's a great idea. Okay, that's great. Yeah. And then the other crop that I thought was so beautiful, the pictures were gorgeous, are these bunching onions. And I thought that they should be an immediate must-have for gardeners. And you mentioned that they can be used the same way as scallions and green onions are used. Yeah, yeah. You can, you can just, they, they have sort of a mild onion flavor and they're great. And I will say one of my favorite recipes, maybe in the world is on page 86. It's this, um, this dipping oil that is typically served with chicken, but honestly, this stuff is good on everything. And it's basically, um, chopped ginger and bunching onions. What you do with it is, you know, you, you chop that stuff up and then you um, bring some oil, you know, to where it's hot just before boiling and you pour it over your onions and ginger and it just brings out the fragrance. It's so yummy. Wow. I'm very glad that you pointed that out. Yeah. It's called crushed ginger and onion dipping oil. Yes. That sounds amazing. Another wonderful vegetable that you share was Chinese cucumber. And this is one that I have flagged because of what you wrote about it. And it's on page 88. I thought I'd have you read this introduction to it. I think cucumber growers especially will be very, very interested and curious about this. We should all be transitioning over to Chinese cucumbers in our 2018 gardens because there's so much upside to them. Yeah. Um, and and I, I bet a lot of us are actually growing Chinese cucumbers without even knowing them. Um, I'll read the section and you'll see what I mean. It's no wonder that Chinese cucumbers are making their way into more and more backyard gardens. Chinese cucumbers taste similar to the cucumbers that most of us are familiar with, but many people find them sweeter and crisper. They also tend to have fewer seeds and are more easily digestible. In fact, many gardeners may already be growing Chinese cucumbers without even knowing it. Any cucumber that is long, slender, and labeled burpless has a good chance of being a Chinese cucumber. Tokiwa and Suyo Long are excellent cultivars to try. Chinese medicine practitioners may recommend making cucumbers a regular part of the diet to thin the blood. The thirst-quenching juice is also known for contributing to a bright complexion and a smooth skin. When my sister got locked out of the house as a kid, she would pluck cucumbers from the garden, wipe them off with her sleeve, and successfully stave off after-school hunger until my mom returned home. Yeah, so we, my, I don't think my mom ever really worried about us um, if she was late coming home because we'd just jump off our bikes and run to the backyard garden and um, 
mm-hmm. cucumber with its with its high water content and nutrition just kind of took care of it. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sitting here listening to you describe it, and again, it's like fewer seeds, massive production. I'm going. There's just nothing but upside here, so I'm really eager to transition over. But I thought it'd be fun. I'll mention a few other standouts that I found in your summer garden section, and of course, this is a big section of your book. And I thought it would be kind of neat to play a quick translation game. So I'll say the vegetable. And then if you could maybe pronounce the Chinese, the Cantonese, the Mandarin terms for us, just so we can hear them. And then maybe just give us one or two quick thoughts about the vegetable. And we'll just move through these. I've got uh, hmm, probably about half a dozen here. Okay. Let's start out with Chinese eggplant. Okay. Um, so in Cantonese, it would be kadzi. Uh, and in Mandarin, um, you know, I pronounce my Mandarin like I would pronounce my French. I, I can do it, but it's not going to be quite right. <laughs> Let's just do Cantonese. Okay, okay. Yeah, Chinese eggplants are are similar to the Chinese um, cucumbers in that they're, it, I feel like it's just upside. First of all, they're gorgeous. Um, second of all, they're a little less bitter. Third, the, you know, the skins are thinner. Um, and there's just more usable eggplant inside instead of like, you know, spongy seeds that you find in uh, a lot of globe eggplants. That's another one I think is just all upside. Ugh, thank you for that insight. Here we go. Daylily buds. This one I just was like, my jaw was hanging open. Yeah, it's great. Okay, so here's a fun translation one. Okay, so daily buds are gum zum, which basically means um, golden uh, needle. Yes, because they're known as golden needle flowers. There's a a picture of the dried daylilies on page 103, where you can kind of see how they take on a little bit of a golden needle look. Um, But yes, that one kind of has a a fun translation. Well, you have to mention about all the different ways that you use these. I mean, you're eating them raw, you're harvesting them right away in the morning. They're prolific bloomers. Of course, these buds are popping up every day and they are beautiful dried, which is what you just alluded to. Yeah, they are. And, you know, and it's funny too, because people are like, daylily buds. I think part of what I have been doing recently is, well, you've had a squash blossom, right? So you've had an edible flower. Mm. So, you know, and if you haven't had a squash blossom, I mean, edible flowers are amazing because they're ever so slightly floral. They're they're kind of sweet and they kind of have like almost a squeaky um, texture. It's delicious. Yeah, it's you're delicious. right. I never thought mm-hmm. about that. You mentioned that when you were talking about eating the daylily buds, that they have that squeaky quality to it. And that I could imagine. So yeah, you're right. Great point. Oh, yeah. The other one that I, I this one made me kind of chuckle. It's fuzzy melon. Yeah, it's great. Okay, so this is pronounced zikwa in Cantonese. And this is one where, you know, if someone was like, God, fuzzy melon, I'd be like, well, you've had a summer squash, you've had a cucumber, right? So, you know, we're kind of close. <laughs> um, you know, so anything you would do with um, summer squash, zucchini, you could do with fuzzy melon. It's probably a little denser and has a higher water content than um, zucchini. But, you know, anything you could do with that, you could do with this fuzzy melon. This is actually kind of an interesting one because it's covered with a layer of fuzz, sort of like um, peach fuzz to the max. To prepare this, you just take the back of a knife and scrape that fuzz off and then you're ready to go. Wendy, peach fuzz to the max. I love that. That's quotable. I love that. (laughs) 
That's fantastic. Okay, this one people might be familiar with, but I had to include it because your picture of these long beans was just jaw-dropping. I thought it was amazing. But long beans, I mean, just you do such a nice job of of describing them in your book. Yeah, long beans are great. Um, Tanguang dao. You know what? And long beans are one. Someone recently was like, oh, no, I didn't like them. They were, you know, they were tough, whatever. So I would say I, I would not describe long beans as tough, but I would say that if you're going to grow long beans, do not expect them to be super long versions of like a French filet bean because they're drier and they're sturdy. But that just means that you can deep fry them. You can stir fry them for a long period of time. I grew some long beans this summer and um, I, I could roast them with the chicken and potatoes and carrots and they would hold up to that roasting. So it's just, it's a little bit of a different thing. But if you're ready for that, long beans are amazing because they grow so fast. They're really fun to grow with kids. You get to pick them all the time and kind of check on them, uh, which is fun if you're growing uh, vegetables with kids. And they, they don't take up a lot of space because they, they, um, they're like a pole bean. You know, as long as they have something to climb, you can usually find space for them in the garden. Kind of tuck them around. Well, these next ones, are, I think, are unique to your book and will be probably the first time many people are hearing about these and how you can use them in the kitchen. The first one is Lotus, and Lotus made the cover of your book as well. But this one I read with great interest. Yeah, Lotus is Liniao. It is. It's on the cover. On the cover, you can see the root sliced up and you can see that it kind of, you know, someone recently described it to me as looking like the, the receiver part on an old telephone. And and it kind of does look like oh, that yeah. because you can see the little air channels. Um, they they look great. I mean, they're beautiful. They're so beautiful. And all parts of the lotus are, are the lotus plant are edible um, besides being a very symbolic plant. And the lotus, I will say um, there, you know, I, I tried to include a wide variety of Chinese vegetables, so it's pretty comprehensive. There are, there's a lot of information here that you could take to your Asian supermarket that will help you out. I mean, you can buy the lotus roots at most um, Asian supermarkets and, and learn what to do with it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I had the same thought. You mentioned this at the beginning, and I was really glad to have you pronounce it for me, but it's the, is it Luffa Gourd? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Luffa Gourd. Luffa Gourd is, uh, it's in Cantonese, it's Sigua, and and it's awesome. I mean, as far as taste, they, you know, you can do anything with a Luffa Gourd that you would do with um, zucchini. I would say the, the texture is a little spongier than a zucchini. But a lot of people really like it. I love it because it's easy to grow. They grow really fast. Um, you do need something for these plants to climb. They can get really big, really pretty in, in the summer. And, you know, you harvest the Luffa gourds when they're, you know, just a few inches long, maybe like six inches, six, eight inches, probably nothing beyond that, or they'll start to get bitter. And the ones that you miss because they are so productive and grow so fast if you leave on the vine, they will turn into those scrubby sponges. <laughs> so you just keep them on the vine and um, before frost, you can bring them in. By then, they'll probably be really light and they'll feel hollow. Um, you can peel off the skin and uh, and you'll be left with, with the sponges that you buy at um you know, you can buy at the supermarket. Bonus. I love it. Yeah. Here's another one that was new to me. Mung beans. Oh, mung beans. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Lukdal, which 
is um, like a green bean. Mung beans are great. They're very nutritious. Yeah, they're easy to grow, but you can you can always find these at the Asian supermarket too, bagged. You can do a lot of things with them. You might have had like these clear noodles in Asian restaurants. Those are usually made from mung beans. You can eat the beans. You can eat the pods when they're young and do a lot of different things with them. That's great. Now, I'd love to have you read your introduction to sweet potato greens. It's on page 133. I thought your reaction will be the same as what ours is going to be as you tell us a story. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, okay. I'll read you the intro from that section. As I leave my parents' house every weekend, they often load up my car with edible goodies to take home. Usually it's a dozen chicken or duck eggs, sometimes a bag of Asian pears. On one autumn evening many years ago, my father handed me a large box with about 50 pounds of white sweet potatoes. I thought he was being very generous with this particularly large quantity of food, and I attempted to convince him to save them for himself. This is when he explained that the real treat was the sweet potato greens he'd been harvesting all summer. The tubers were simply a byproduct of the harvest. Now that I know the secret, sweet potato greens are among my favorite Asian greens to eat too. They're mild, tender, and extremely easy to grow, especially when most other greens have bolted in the summer. Being high in vitamin C and K, folates and iron, the leaves of the sweet potato plant are actually more nutritious and the tubers themselves, and are usually pest-free all summer. At the end of a long season of harvesting, the leaves, the sweet potatoes, are a bonus. Who knew? Sweet potato greens. That's something that I had never heard of. Yeah. I do feel like people are trying this more and more, more so this year than like two years ago or three years ago when I first started talking about it. I've heard of people, you know, posting pictures from their farmer's market where they're selling sweet potato greens and that kind of thing. So soon they may make their way into your supermarket. Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you this this quick story. There was a day that my mom made these, um, she made this dish and it, and it basically looked like really thin beans. It looked like a dish of really thin beans, you know, sautéed in a sauce or or stir-fried in a sauce or something. And she was just sort of, you know, giggling and she was like, oh, guess what this is? And we all tried it and we, you know, guessed various beans and different things. Um, and finally, she told us that they were sweet potato stems. She had basically just cut segments of stems um, from the sweet potato plants and stir fried it. And I'll tell you, they were delicious. And it was, I think she did it for fun because I, I would imagine it would be a lot of work to, you know, snip these stems, but it was, it was pretty funny. Oh my gosh. Right now people are going, I am so trying that not only for the greens, but for the <laughs> stems now. Yeah, You're, yeah, yeah. You have all these wonderful, wonderful anecdotal stories and they're just all over your book. So I hope that people are getting very curious because this is such a treasure to have your book, I think. You know, there were a number of experiences that you share that I think really illustrate the dedication to the garden and to the care of the harvest that's just part of how your family operates. There's a section on page 143 where you talk about just food preservation. What happens in your family in the fall when it's harvest time and it's time to preserve? Oh, yeah. Food preservation is one of my favorite topics. I'll read you the intro from that section. While food preservation was once a necessity for villagers 
like my parents to survive the cold months in Shandong. It now symbolizes the joy and fortune of having an excess of crops, creating new foods from ordinary vegetables from the garden, and having healthy foods to last until next spring. At their house every fall, my parents preserve duck eggs and salty brine, which will offer a savory zing to one of my go-to favorite foods, pork bone congee. Fish from the pond, such as perch or small bass, have been sun-dried and will be preserved in a salted oil. My children and I love to eat small pieces of the salty fish in my father's homemade plain white steamed buns. My parents laugh as we relish this country food like it is the most delicious fancy dinner my mom has ever cooked. In the early fall, my parents fill their many food dehydrators with vegetables like sliced radishes, chunks of bottle gourd, or whole peppers. Removing the moisture through the drying process means the vegetable will keep for many months when stored in airtight jars. This assortment of dehydrated vegetables and herbs can be rehydrated and added to stir fries and other dishes throughout the winter. My family eats most of the leafy greens that we grow, sharing a good crop with the ducks, but it's possible to preserve most other vegetables by drying in some way, including some that might not be expected. One of my favorite idyllic scenes from Asian gardens is a long string of bok choy hanging to air dry like clothes pinned to a clothesline. These dried bundles of bok choy can be added to a bowl of noodles just before hot soup is ladled over it. Winter melons and some other vegetables will sit for months in a cold cellar or shed ready to be hacked into large wedges when the weather turns and you have a craving for a nourishing hot pot of soup. Sweet potatoes, producers of those delicious greens we've been enjoying all summer, will be unearthed from the garden sometime before frost, cured for a week or so, and then stored for use throughout the fall. This is a busy time. You've got pickling, you've got drying, you've got all different kinds of preservation methods that your family does. And I thought it was such a great glimpse into what it's like to be around your family at this time. Yeah, it's it's a lot of work too. I mean, my mom doesn't work. My father's been retired for a good number of years, but they're, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, I have a day off. I'm like, do you guys want to go do something? Oh, we're so busy. We are so, so busy. And they're just <laughs> like, they have food to process or things to make. It's, you know, just like, it's, it's really funny. <laughs> Well, there were a number of wonderful vegetables that you feature in the fall garden. As you mentioned at the top of the show, a lot of it's about the greens. There were a number of choys that you feature in the fall garden. So there's, I hope I'm saying this right, a choy, bok choy, choy sum. Mm -hmm. And I thought you could help us with our choy literacy. Yeah. Bok choy is, you know, most of us have had bok choy at this point. There are different varieties. So if you were to look through a seed catalog, I, I would suggest reading the descriptions and looking at the size of the bok choy, um, the color of the, the bok choy, the taste. Um, but that's a solid green that you would um, stir fry or steam or boil or put in a, a noodle soup or something. And let's see. A choy is really great. A, a leafy green lettuce that you would put in a salad. Um, it's a it's a Taiwanese lettuce. You can recognize it because it, it's sort of like long and arrow shaped, and it's just a good it's a good solid uh, leafy green. And I would say that 
um, in, in Chinese cuisine, we usually um, cook our greens. If you're looking for something to eat raw, then a choy is a really great one. Like it's a it's a really great salad lettuce. Choy sum is is similar to the to the Chinese broccoli in that when you get it, you will eat the the thick stem and the leaves and any flowers that are on the plant. You just eat the whole part and it's it's delicious. And then tell us about is it tot soy too? Because you say it's a choy alternative. Yeah, tot soy is a great one, um, mostly because it is really cold hardy. So the tot soy that I put in my garden late fall that I've forgotten about, it'll just grow. It'll grow like crazy. Um, it withstands frost. Um, it actually tastes better after a frost, just like carrots sweeten up. The tot soy sweetens up too. And it, it's just really sturdy. It's, it's very, It's very delicious and really sturdy. I would say my favorite leafy green is probably gai lan, or Chinese broccoli. It's often described as slightly bitter, but I don't really think so. I love the leaves that don't turn to mush, and I love the stems that would, that you cooked just crisp tender. I mean, I think it's just a it, texture-wise, it's great for me. T- taste-wise, it's great for me. And I also have a, a recipe of it's sort of my mom's master recipe for greens, and um, and it's delicious with the with the um, gailan. A lot of times if you go to a, a Chinese restaurant, you'll find choice some on the menu. You'll you'll find gai lan on the menu too. Honestly, you might not find a a side dish of bok choy. You might find bok choy thrown in in noodle dishes, but um if if you're talking about like a restaurant that caters to Chinese people and you're looking for like a nice solid side dish of greens, it'll usually be choice some or gai lan. All right. Well, thank you for that. You know, there's another herb that you mention in the fall garden, and I read this with great interest, and it was about cilantro, because you share that all parts of cilantro are edible, and I didn't realize that. Yeah, I mean, the, the roots and the, um, the the base of the plants are really flavorful. Um, cilantro, I guess it's one of those, I mean, we've seen those articles going around about, you know, different parts of your genetic makeup that <laughs> make you um, prone to like cilantro or not. Um, I happen to love cilantro. I can't get enough of it. Um, so I love all cuisines that that use a lot of cilantro from Mexican to Chinese. Yeah, I mean, you can use all parts of it. Um, unlike parsley where, well, even with parsley, we're using stems more and more in, in uh, recipes, I think. But um, unlike, you know, back in the day when we would just rip off the leafy top of the parsley, you we would just go ahead and use the entire cilantro plant. Well, another plant that was new to me was something you call stem lettuce. What was really fascinating is that it's grown for the stem and not for the leaves that look like normal lettuce leaves. Yeah, stem lettuce is really interesting, actually. And one of my photos, I think this is one of the the few that I took, is in the book. Um, And you can get a really good sense of what this lettuce looks like. And I'll I'll describe it for your listeners. Um, Stem lettuce looks like loose leaf lettuce essentially. Um, And as it grows, you'll pluck off leaves from the bottom of the plant 
the leaves are okay. You can eat the leaves. You can definitely eat the leaves, um, but you're not growing it for the leaf because the leaf isn't the tastiest part. Like you said, it's the stem. And as you pull off those lower leaves, it encourages the stem to kind of grow thicker and thicker so that by mid, well, late autumn, you'll have what looks like Gosh, I don't even know how to describe this. You'll have you'll have a plant that looks like a thick, maybe two inch diameter stem with loose leaves on the top. And then what what you'll do is you'll just use a vegetable peeler, peel the stem, and um, and do what you want with the stem. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. To me, the the stem kind of looked like asparagus with just some lettuce on top of it. But it just was so interesting to me. What I didn't appreciate is the fact that you're plucking leaves off the bottom to create that stem. Yeah. And and a lot of times my dad will feed those um, leaves to the ducks. So no part of the plant goes wasted. <laughs> of course but yeah, not. I mean, if you were to imagine super, super fat asparagus, that that's, yeah, you're probably right. That's similar to how it looks. Uh-huh. Um, if you ever see this, I've seen this actually in the Asian supermarket recently, and it looks horrendous. I mean, you you know, I can just imagine the thoughts of people walking by and looking at this and thinking Chinese people are so weird and they eat the weirdest stuff because the little bits of the stem where the leaves have been pulled off have started to yellow a little bit. It just looks like that giant stalk with a couple of tiny wilted leaves on top and it looks horrible and and that's why I hope people will know that you you peel the outside and it'll be beautiful and the, you know you'll eat that sort of crisp and juicy stem and of course it's it's much better when you grow it on your own hmm. well you do this wonderful segment where you're talking about Napa cabbage but to me the best part about it is that we get to see some pictures of you making your dad's Napa cabbage dumplings, which I think it sounds like that took some doing, getting that recipe to be part of the book because it's so special and, and he's obviously perfected it. But the pictures were great. This is There's probably more how-to kind of step-by-step pictures because making dumplings is a little more involved. But I just thought how wonderful that this recipe has now been documented. And for people listening that are always on the lookout for a good dumpling recipe, I mean, this one's gold. This is a heirloom for your family. Yeah, I'm. You know, my husband, who is um, who studied history and anthropology, is constantly like, "You got to write all the stuff down. You got to get everyone's stories." <laughs> and I am really happy that um, I, I have it all recorded. Oh, so wonderful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the tricks with making dumplings is um, I, I probably say in my book that that you need to like vigorously stir that filling for a very long time. And and that might seem like a, a step that you just like, what's the point? Um, but that really helps to, to kind of emulsify the whole thing. And um, it, it creates like a really juicy and smooth filling. Ah, a little tip here. That's great. Yep. Well, finally, tell us about winter melon and this traditional winter melon soup recipe that's in the book. I thought it was beautiful. It's almost a blue melon. Yeah. And the reason why it looks slightly blue is because as this thing matures, it becomes covered with a layer of wax. 
And uh, and I think I probably posted a picture on Facebook, on my uh, Chinese Kitchen Garden Facebook page. You know, growing up, my dad would, every every winter would be like, get the basketball, get the basketball. And we'd have to put the basketball next to the winter melon to show how gigantic <laughs> the winter melon is. Oh, my God. It's like an it. annual thing. Oh, yeah, I mean, but these things can be like 60 pounds because they get so gigantic and they're such a high water content melon. So, yeah, so they're mostly made into soups. And then the winter melon soup recipe I have in here is pretty classic. And, you know, you, you make it in a pot and you serve it. I, I will say that um, if you go to a super fancy restaurant in China, you might have it served um, sort of banquet style, which is where they'll take the winter melon and hollow it out like you would hollow out a jack-o'-lantern. Um, and then carve the outside of the melon sort of bas relief style probably with some sort of you know dragon or some auspicious symbol or something and then they would fill the, the the melon with the soup and steam the whole thing and bring that that out in, in an elaborate presentation and then when they serve it you would get a ladle of the soup along with like a little hunk of the melon that they've taken off the side Oh, so, honestly. That's pretty spectacular. Yeah, that is spectacular. It reminds me of when I interviewed Anna Thomas and we did this Thanksgiving episode. And one Thanksgiving, she had this beautiful pumpkin, this huge, I think it was a white pumpkin. And she and her son were just having this quiet Thanksgiving together. And she hollowed out the inside of the pumpkin and they put all their ingredients inside it. And then they, mm. they baked it that way. And then when it was time to serve it, they just sliced it in these wonderful wedges and this pumpkin just kind of fell open. So as you're describing this, oh, yeah. you know, this winter soup with this beautiful winter melon, I, I just am like, wow, that just it sounds so familiar that way. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Well, I wanted to end with this wonderful story that is just, for me, the, the story that I'll always associate with your book. You share it at the end of your book as you introduce the winter garden, the winter season. And I thought it was just so touching because you learned so much about your family and the role that the garden played in your family's survival back in China. In fact, if your family wasn't gardening, you probably wouldn't be here because that's the difference between life and death. But right. I thought this story that you share when you're introducing winter was just so incredible. And I'm thrilled that you said you would read it for us. Sure. I'll read you the intro from that section. Every now and then, I ask my father questions about his garden in China, knowing that this is the vehicle for learning more about his childhood life. Asking about the vegetables he grew and how he grew them gives him a safe route to tell me about a life from the distant past that was as tough as it was bucolic. The climate in my father's Sandong, China, is much like our climate in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. We have hot summers, cold winters, and hard freezes and snowstorms and beautiful spring and fall seasons. Even the clay soil is similar. It was easy for him to take his gardening experience and pick up where he left off after arriving in America in the mid-1970s. Fortunately, what he did not have to carry over was the necessity of growing vegetables as the sole source of food. In early winter before the ground froze solid, my father, my uncle, and my grandmother dug large pits several feet wide and deep in their nearby garden. 
Then if they were lucky, they would be able to borrow a wheelbarrow or wagon for the walk farther out to the family's larger growing fields. They would harvest cold weather crops such as Napa cabbages, radishes, and winter squash, and bring them back to the pits in the garden. There, they were buried for use throughout the winter. As he told the story, I love the image of the Napa cabbages upside down, neatly lined up, and stacked several levels high. When the cabbages neared the soil line, they would be covered with dirt, leaves, and later snow and stored until they were needed. The cabbages would be buried upside down with roots facing up to prevent the inner leaves from being covered in loose dirt. The upward-facing roots also provided an easy way to fish for and grab the hefty heads of cabbage. During the coldest days of winter, my father would go out to the pit and dig out two or three heads of cabbage to last his family the week. Several large and beautiful cabbages would also be buried in the pit but stacked right side up with the roots facing down. This was my family's way to designate the seed cabbages that would be transplanted into the garden in the spring. When summer approached, the cabbages would flower and their seeds would be saved for fall planting. I grew up not knowing the hunger and the hard work required to stave off that hunger that my relatives just one generation back experienced. I'm saddened that this was a life my father and his family lived but I'm also empowered by their ingenuity. With handfuls of seed along with intellect, determination, and physical work, they created everything they needed to survive throughout the year, including the harsh winter months, in a place where refrigerators, grocery stores, and even basic living conveniences such as heat and plumbing were non-existent. These stories keep me inspired to learn more about growing and preserving my own food. When I harvest herbs, greens, or radishes from under snow cover in my own garden, I feel a small spark of connection with the boy my father was and the grandmother I never knew. Mm. Wendy, thank you so much for reading that. Yeah, thank you. I have to say, you know, my favorite books, because I interview a lot of garden authors, my favorite books are the ones where I get to have some connection to the person writing the book. So I think of Leslie Buck's book. Uh, You know, I interviewed her. She was talking about her time spent in Kyoto, learning how to prune with Japanese gardeners, or Kylie Baumley's book, where she was talking about saving monarchs. And then she went to the sanctuaries in Mexico. And it's all those personal connections that make those books extra special to me. When I think about your book, The Chinese Kitchen Garden, it's not just about gardening or Chinese vegetables, but it's about your family, the food of your family and how it's brought you together and how it was really a gateway to learning more about your past. So your book is very, very special, I think. And I hope that people will be so inspired after hearing this podcast to go out and get it because I think it'll be something that they treasure. So before we wrap, I want to make sure that you get a chance to tell people where they can find you online and where you're at on social media and how they can get a hold of your book. Yeah, um, your listeners can uh, visit my website. It's www.wendykyungspray.com. There's a little blog on there to stay up to date on the blog. They can also follow me on my Chinese Kitchen Garden Facebook page. I attempt to use um, Instagram. Um, I'm at Asian Vegetables. It's hard to keep up with it all. Yes, it is. Um, 
If you're interested in the book or more about me, if you Google me or the book, you will find something. I also have a, a slightly defunct um, garden blog called greenishthumb.net that um, kind of went by the wayside after I discovered how fun Facebook is. So I'm also on Facebook. If, if you can tolerate all the kid posts, but besides <laughs> that, yeah. Well, and I love that you're in Facebook and I certainly hope that you join the listener community, the still growing podcast group. We'd love to see you in there. And I know that people will probably have some questions about varieties or growing their first kitchen garden, if that's something they're going to attempt for 2018. But Wendy, this has just been such a treat. So I, again, I just thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much. It was so fun. Well, that's it for our show today featuring Wendy Kyung Spray and the Chinese Kitchen Garden. Wasn't that something else? I hope today's show just created a ton of havoc on your seed order or how you thought you were going to lay out your garden. Because after listening to this, you probably want to try some of the awesome vegetables that Wendy just shared with us. And by the way, that's just a fraction of the 38 she she shares in her book, not to mention all of the wonderfully inspiring recipes. Don't read it hungry, just warning you. And I know that I personally am thinking about a whole lot of new ideas thanks to Wendy's superb book. I love Wendy's book. Just a reminder that the show notes for this episode will be under the podcast page over at my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And don't forget, I'd love to meet you in the still growing listener community over in Facebook. It's the free private Facebook group. Just search for still growing podcast group the next time you're in Facebook and then request to join. And you're going to want to do that that quickly if you want a chance to win a copy of Wendy's superb book. I'd like to thank my team over at Podfly Productions, my editor and project manager, Eric Begay, and my copywriter, Ein Kadena. I'd also like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm, and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she was featured back in episode 553, where we talked all about incorporating more native plants into your landscape. For my sign off today, I leave you with this thought to help you grow. What if asking questions about gardening or cooking could give you a glimpse into your own family history? Who should you be talking to? Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a sixfootmama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Beep, beep. When I find a great pair of... <laughs> Let's start that again. Beep, beep. Now, when I find a great pair of boots or dress shoes, I've learned I've... Beep, beep. Well, it's... Beep, beep.
Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm, and one of the finest companies in horticultural. Oh my goodness. Beep, beep. And one of the finest. I'm going to start that again. Beep, beep. Beth works. Beep, beep. Deb Gibson, Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand. Oh my gosh. Beep, beep. Here's the blooper sound effect to use in between bloopers. Beep, beep. <laughs> Sorry. Beep, beep. Oh, I was yawning. Missed my opening. Beep, beep. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Wendy Kiung Spray is on the show today, and she is the author of the superb book, Chinese Kitchen Garden. Woo! Beep, beep. Robert said, we've incorporated playfulness and magic into every aspect. Oh, there goes my phone. Blooper. Beep, beep. And one of my favorite features is there's this giant dragon's nest in a woven willow. 